1: Before we start today's show, just a warning that this episode is about gender-based violence. There are a few graphic depictions. We want you to take care when you listen. In 2021, Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta pledged to end gender-based violence, or GBV, by 2026.
2: Kenya commits itself to fully enforce gender-based violence laws and policies by adopting a gender-based violence indicator in the government.
1: That's really ambitious, especially given the extent of the problem.
0: You can deny many things, but you cannot deny the data, you cannot deny the numbers.
1: That's Julie Mwabe. She was the gender advisor to the president of Kenya when he pledged to end GBV by 2026. According to documents from Kenya's Gender-Based Violence Recovery Center, One in three females has experienced an episode of sexual violence before reaching the age of 18, and around 42% of Kenyan women say that they've experienced gender-based violence in their lifetime. The COVID pandemic only made things worse.
0: Schools had closed abruptly, and they were home and now prone to violence, especially. Many were going through female genital mutilation because now families needed money and they needed to sell off the girls and those child. So there was a lot of issues that were going on.
1: Mwabe and others pressed President Kenyatta to address this crisis. She was encouraged when they began to make bold proclamations, like the one we played earlier.
0: Being a head of state, you have the convening power. When you call, everybody answers. So he was able to bring in the operators, the health, security, those dealing with sort of just the gender, the education sectors round one table and say, how do we move this forward? Because you cannot do it on your own.
1: Kenyatta made 12 specific commitments to end gender-based violence by 2026. They fall into a few main buckets. Better enforcing existing laws, improving data collection, stronger coordination between various groups, and perhaps most importantly, more funding for a lot of things shelters, a gender based violence fund, higher quality research, and scaling up the National Police Service to have a better integrated response to GBV. But Kenyatta is no longer in office. William Ruto was elected to be president of Kenya in late 2022. He, too, has talked about protecting women's rights.
3: Female genital mutilation is against the law, is against the Constitution, is an illegal activity.
1: This brings us to the present. With two years left before 2026, we ask, is Kenya still on track to fulfill the promises made to Kenyan women? From Foreign Policy, this is A Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. I'm Rina Nainan. This season, we've been exploring the theme of accountability. And in today's episode, the last of our season, we talk to women's rights activists who are pressing the Kenyan government to uphold its pledge to end gender-based violence. Later in the show, we speak with Anne Areri, the Executive Director of the Federation of Women Lawyers in Kenya. She shares what progress has been made and what's still left to do. But first, we turn to Nairobi-based journalist Pauline Ongaji, about the state of femicide in Kenya being killed because of being female.
2: Audrey Mugeni and Kathomi Gatwiri became lifelong friends in college. They attended the Catholic University of East Africa, where they studied social work. They're still close. During a visit to Kenya in 2018, Audrey and Kathomi were catching up with another friend from college. She told them something pretty disturbing about someone she went to school with.
3: As we are still talking, one of our friends tells us of her classmate, who also at that particular time had been killed by now her husband. She was in an abusive relationship and in this abusive relationship, she left. So she left back to her parents' home and when children are supposed to go back to school, she's like, she tells her parents, you know, I don't have money to buy new school uniform. Let me go back home and get the school uniform for these children. Big mistake for anyone who's listening, big mistake. What happens next is hard to hear so she calls the ex-husband at the time and tells him that she's coming to pick the uniform and this man now planned the whole you know to take revenge on her for leaving him so she goes back he closes the door beats her to a pulp douses her body in fuel
2: and sets her ablaze the woman managed to open the door and escape but then she died later in the hospital audrey had heard similar stories of abuse over the years but Audrey and her friends realized that this kind of tragedy was not being talked about enough. And we sat there and, and realized
3: we did not hear about this anywhere. Did you read about this in the newspapers? No. Did you hear about this on the news? And we were like, no. And we sat there and realized how much of this is going on in the country. How many other women are dying because of this? Why, why is no one saying anything about this? So we asked ourselves, do we want to do something about this?
2: Her friend Kadomi said in Australia, for example, they counted femicides when women die because of gender-based violence. There was actually a social media effort that to some might sound shocking, counting dead women Australia.
3: So she showed me the Facebook page of Australia and asked if we could start a page like that. So what we started doing was we started just documenting the names. So we started the Facebook page and that is how we started counting dead women Kenya. That is the name of the Facebook page.
2: Counting Dead Women Kenya is a completely voluntary project and receives minimal financial support. Now, a number of volunteers also help them, inspired by their work. The case of femicide data in Kenya is a complex one. There are pockets of documentation of violence against women by their partners. But when it comes to categorizing femicide, information can be hard to find. Because of this, the project relies largely on documentation of cases reported by the media. We spend a lot of time going
3: through newspapers, and then we also have now to listen to the news. This is where we get all of our documentation from. They also set up Google News Alerts. We've put prompts that anytime Google hears about a femicide, death of a woman, a woman has been killed, gender-based violence, somebody has died. So we've put prompts like that. So that anytime we get something like that, then we'll get an email notification that will tell us a woman has died. And then we'll be able
2: to see if we can get the story. And this usually goes beyond just the numbers. It captures in-depth details of the victims. So usually what we want to focus on
3: is what was the name of this particular lady who has died? What was her occupation? How old was she? Which county was she from? which month was she killed the month is also very important and how was she killed so we talk about the death and then who is the perpetrator these are the things that we look at for us to see and then we also look at the reason
2: for killing but this comes after each of these cases have been through a special review to determine that indeed they fit the description of femicide.
3: With a femicide, there has to be the background of violence at first. So there's violence, and then from the violence, then it's led to now the death of this particular woman or girl. That's how we are able to tell that this is a femicide. Most of the time, the femicide is committed by a person that this woman or this particular girl knows. So it's never really a stranger. Not all cases
2: make it to the newsroom, and that's when it gets tough.
3: That has been a very big challenge, to find other sources of where these stories are coming
2: from. Kenya has an access to information provision in its constitution. You can submit a request to the public offices. But in reality, most of these cases aren't formally documented. So Audrey and Kadomi decided they needed a more reliable way to get hard data. The best place for us to get this information is from the police. The police have been
3: willing to help, but at a price. You cannot just walk into a police station to get information
2: without having to
3: pay a police. You can't just do that, no.
2: The police may not ask for money directly for the information, but it's expected that payments are made for them to help out. But in the end, getting information has been worth it. The impact of the data from Counting Dead Women Kenya is already being felt.
3: Our data is open, so a lot of people, every time they need to talk about femicide, then they will go back to our data and talk about it. When you talk to people about femicide, people do not even understand what femicide is. But now, because of doing the count, because of talking about the women who are dying, because of talking about gender-based violence, we've been able to bring to light what femicide
2: is. Even with this, Audrey insists that a lot more needs to be done to address the issue of femicide. And she wants the government to be more involved. Kenya maintains national statistics on homicides and gender-based violence. But there's a gap in the data. It doesn't identify when deaths have been the result of gender-based violence, or GBV. This is what Audrey is fighting to
3: change. The government is not collecting this data. When we started collecting this data, we were collecting this data to hand it over to the government. That is still our plan, to hand over this data to the government so that the government will be able to see there is something that is going on.
2: In the meantime, they are now making plans this year to start working directly with the Directorate of Criminal Investigations, or DCI. So, One of the things that we are trying to
3: do is see if we can get into partnerships with, say, the DCI, because the stories go to them. So what we are garnering up to do is become the femicide watch in the country so that we will be able to watch and we'll be able to present our data globally as an African country.
2: Audrey is proud of the work they've done to bring attention and real data to this critical issue. They hope that the more people know about femicide in their communities, the more likely it is that their leaders will be forced to protect women better. For the Eden Economics of Remarkable Women, I'm Pauline Ngaji.
1: Up next, how a group of Kenyan lawyers are working through the legal system to make sure the Kenyan government upholds its promises to women. Welcome back to The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a production of Foreign Policy. I'm Rina Nainen. Before the break, we heard about a grassroots effort called Counting Dead Women Kenya. They document the horrific phenomenon of femicide. These activists say that the government's current efforts to collect data on femicide, largely through democratic surveys, do not fully capture the magnitude of the problem. The group recorded 152 killings in 2023. That's the highest number since they started tracking this five years ago. So far this year, Kenyan media outlets have reported at least 14 women have been killed. Recently, thousands of women marched in Nairobi, calling for an end to femicide. There are many ways to pressure the government to uphold its pledges. While outside activists are essential for harnessing grassroots support, there are those working within Kenya's legal system to push for change as well. One of those is Anne Ireri. She's the executive director of the Federation of Women Lawyers in Kenya, or FIDA Kenya. Her legal aid organization has represented thousands of women since 2021, when then-Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta first pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. Ireri talked about the pledge and about FIDA Kenya's other work with our senior producer, Laura Ross-Broutellum. A little note, Reri spoke from her office, which was a little noisy, so you may be hearing some intermittent beeping in the background. Here's Laura's interview.
4: The president of Kenya at the time, Huru Kenyatta, he made a big pledge in 2021. He said the country would end gender-based violence by 2026. At the time, I'm curious, what did you make of this pledge
5: For us, it was a bold statement. It was an acknowledgement by the state that there exists a problem. It was commitment to ensuring that they find solutions as a state towards alleviating the problem, but most importantly, coming from that highest office. But of course, like with any other declaration, The actions must follow. There must be very coordinated, well-planned interventions that complement each other, appreciating that no one agency can be able to solve this problem by itself. What do
4: you think has been done so far and what do you think still needs to be done?
5: In terms of the positives, there has been substantive investment in uh, awareness raising especially within the pandemic of COVID, we've also seen progress, especially from um, policy level and legal interventions. There have been clauses or measures that have been enhanced uh, to make sure that we speak more about gender-based violence in terms of the pieces of legislation, but it's still a work in progress. In our view, the biggest link still remains in the response, especially in investigation. And why we keep on harping about investigation and law enforcement is because, again, going back to our system, they who allege must prove. So the state does present the case on behalf of the victim, which means we have to have a close to beyond proof, watertight, evidence-level case that is presented. We love the Honourable Chief Justice of Kenya. She has been able to unveil for the first time specialized SGBV courts, but that is one part of the great milestones. The other part includes having consistent investment in having cases fast-tracked, having very clear measures, especially on defense sides of litigation and perpetrators who deploy delayed tactics so that the cases don't proceed on, and just having very clear standard operating procedures that stipulate within our laws the maximum period within which a case needs to be heard. Really within a maximum of six months, that case should have been heard, but the unfortunate thing is we are having cases dragging on and on, which beats the purpose of justice, and victims end up thinking twice about whether to
4: proceed on. You've worked across Africa, and you've lived in many different places. So I'm also curious, from your perspective, how Kenya's legal response to survivors differs from
5: other places. The example that we draw from a lot is South Africa, because our legislation is very similar. We borrowed the Sexual Offences Act heavily from them, as well as the constitution. And for us, what we feel in the context of South Africa that has worked, that would be a good practice for us is having one-stop centers. That's where we lose out in terms of time in our Kenyan context. That a victim has to travel to a hospital that is possibly a hundred or even 50 kilometers from them, spend another day going to the police station to get a report, and a third day, if they're lucky within the same month, to have a plea taken in court. Ultimately, what we want to achieve with legal solutions is to deter any would-be perpetrator because they know the law is responsive and it will take its course. But that also requires, again, consistent funding. That within every budget cycle, be it at national level or at county level, there is specific funds that are set aside that are resourced in and the appreciation that it's not a women's issue that they are funding, it's a national security question that they are funding
4: the original commitment was supposed to increase the amount of funding towards combating gender-based violence from more than $20 million to around $50 million. What's
5: happened with that? That's a good question, Laura. We are all wondering what, what has happened, which is unfortunate because, one, as a country, we have demonstrated that we can incur debt And we can do whatever is needed to enhance financing. When we've had our conversations with the Ministry of Gender, for instance, they are continuously raising concern that they are really, really underfunded. Could it be that people perceive this ministry not to be important? That's something that we need to factor in.
4: Recently, your organization publicly criticized the government for its inability to protect women and girls from femicide. And you told the citizen that two big things need to be addressed with the police how they investigate gender based violence complaints, and also better data coordination. Can you tell me more about that? If you look at our
5: constitution, we have very clear provisions on the responsibilities of the National Police Service in terms of investigation. Investigation has to be prompt, it has to be effective, it has to be timely. It has to be professional. So what we are calling upon and what we are criticising is that we are yet to see full commitment from the National Police Service in matters investigation. In one particular case, several women came out and claimed that they had made reports about the same perpetrator who had violated them as well prior to this fatal case that went really high level. And the question of data speaks to also then The seriousness with which they take these cases because ultimately crime statistics should be anchored within the security apparatus. Same way, you question in a day how many robberies did we have? How many carjackings did we have? They'll have that data. But when it comes to femicide, because of the mixed application in terms of reacting to the cases and some of them not being taken seriously. Then we don't have grounded statistics. But bottom line, it is a national security question. It's not a gender question. It's not a women's issue. It is a national security matter because half of your population does not feel safe. And unfortunately, they feel the state is not doing enough to protect. them.
4: So you've said a number of times that the police aren't taking these complaints seriously. Why do you think that is?
5: I would say the police are a reflection of our society to victim blame and victim shame. Where were they? What were they doing? What were they dressed? What were they thinking? And this is the same kind of attitudes that plague the response. And so what we need to invest in is dismantling a lot of the attitudes. So once they also personalise and appreciate that it could easily happen to any of their loved ones, we often see a shift. However, the police themselves have also been candid to share with us that, and we've seen a number of them really, really mean well, but then they are not equipped, they're not capacitated, they're not given the facilities, and they're not resourced sufficiently to carry out investigations. And we have seen that from them.
4: So what do you think could increase funding? towards this work this seems to be a consistent issue in terms of police, in terms of everything.
5: I think just having minimum quarters, what percentage of a nation's budget should go towards health. Data is available and research that there's a huge cost as a result of gender-based violence. Women are losing out of work, losing out of income opportunities because they're not able to work. So we must do what we can To ensure that women and girls are fully able to participate in the economic activity, in building the nation, in contributing to the growth of the nation. Hence, we need to invest this type of resources. So, not a blanket allocation, but very clear allocation with clear accountability measures on who has been tasked to do what.
4: If you could do three things by 2026 to substantially reduce gender based violence, What would they be?
5: Firstly, I would ensure that every member of the police service in Kenya can adequately and effectively carry out gender-based violence-related investigation. It does not matter where they are. Secondly, I would work with the judiciary. I would ensure that we have very clear guidelines on a maximum period any gender-based violence case should take in court and have commitment to that. Third thing i would do is to make sure that the national government and the county government commits at least having one shelter, one shelter in a county that is well resourced, which will make all the difference between a life of a woman being lost and her being able to find temporary shelter, temporary assistance, to be able to get out of the GBV situation report her matter, and effectively be there to see her case through because she does not have to worry about her perpetrator finding her and harming her as a result of her speaking out.
4: So my, my last question to you is, do you think that the government will make this 2026 commitment? And also, is it even possible to end gender-based violence?
5: GBV, by its nature being endemic, possibly presents a challenge that we might never completely eliminate it, but we can reduce it substantively. We have seen challenges such as female genital mutilation not being eliminated, but being reduced substantively. And there's empirical finding to it. So the same case with GBP, we need to see that the substantive and consistent investment to reducing it even substantively reducing it will already be such a huge step. As to whether the government might make this commitment, there is still time. However, for us then to make up for the time lost, there has to be the very deliberate means that need to address this. And one of the key examples would be when the head of state is presenting the State of the Nation Address, which he does annually, he's required under the Constitution to make this address, Dedicate time to speak about gender based violence. Let the statistics be there. Show what you have done. I think the more it is reiterated from that highest level of office, the more it will be mainstreamed into the government interventions. So we need to see sustained commitment, especially between now and uh, 2026. And I'm certain if there's that focus on at least achieving part of the commitment. Then come 2026, there will be a lot of substantive progress to report.
4: Thank you so much for your time and just sharing so much insight about what can be done about this. And uh, we just really thank you for the important work that you're doing over there. Thank you so much.
5: Thank you, Laura, too. Thank you for having me.
1: And thanks to our senior producer, Laura Rossbrow tellum for conducting that interview. Before we head out, I want to turn back to Julie Mwabe, who you heard from at the top of the show. She was the gender advisor to the president of Kenya. When I spoke with her at Foreign Policy's Her Power Summit in the fall, I wanted to hear what she thought could end gender-based violence. Is there anything that you can point to that's really worked in decreasing gender-based violence?
0: There are many promising pathways. Uh, um, education. You're a big advocate for education. Tell me why this is
1: (laughs) so important, because we can understand how education will help women and girls and why it can help someone individually. How can education transform a community?
0: Education, I mean, it is the driving power, right? It is, you know, the people say it's the great equalizer. When, you're, when you educate a girl, she's able to make her own decisions. She's able to, on her spending, on what she buys, on her body. Um, you educate a girl, you educate the community. And it's the same girls who come back and able to be the doctors, the nurses, the uh, engineers for those communities and be able to sort of advance them and get them out of the poverty cycle.
1: There's ample research about how poverty increases the likelihood of gender-based violence. For Julie, education is a major solution. And that's what she's working on now. She's working at an NGO called the Global Partnership for Education based in D.C. Julie says one of her main goals is to make education more available all over the world, particularly for girls. And that actually brings us to our theme for our next season. Starting in March, we'll be focusing our entire season on girls, how they're thriving despite the odds and what they need most from the rest of the world right now. Thanks for listening to the amazing reporters and experts on this season, all about accountability. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the show. So if you fill out our listener survey in the show notes of this episode, you can put your name in the drawing for a hundred dollar gift card. Thanks so much for your feedback. And that does it for today's show. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is a production of Foreign Policy and is made possible through funding in part from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is hosted by me, Rena Nainan. Laura Rosbrow brout is our senior producer. Rob Sachs, our managing director. Production assistance provided by Nicholas Petrie-Mitchell. And Pauline Ongaji contributed reporting for this episode. We look forward to being back in your feed in just a few weeks for our next season with stories from inspiring girls around the world.